All right, by listening to this podcast, you're a pretty good track and field fan, but prove you're super elite. You're in the top 1%. Join the Let's Run.com supporters club today. And if you do, you're going to get access to one of the best features that Jonathan Galt has ever written. It's on double threshold training from Norway to Flagstaff. This has taken over the world. Is it all new or did Sub Co actually do it? We've got quotes from Co, Bob Kennedy, everything. It's an amazing article. Let's run.com slash subscribe today. Welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. Boy, do we have a show for you today. We just wrapped one of the biggest weekends of track and field of the entire year with three world records at the Paris Diamond League on Friday. Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni finally raced, and Keely Hodgkinson set a British record in her season opener. Should a thing, Mo, be worried? Plus, the NCAA championships were in Austin. Robert Johnson and Jonathan Gold from Let's Run were there. We have a lot to unpack. Will Sumner and Parker Valby are NCAA champions. Caitlin Tui and Britton Wilson came up short. And which collegians could we see at the World Championships this year? We'll talk about that. Plus, we take a look ahead at Thursday's Oslo Diamond League, where we'll get a rematch between Yard Nagus and Jakob Ingebrigtsen in one of the most stacked 1,500-meter races of the year. This is Jonathan Gold. I'm joined as always by the co-founders of Let's Run.com, Robert and Weldon Johnson. I have good news, or maybe it's bad news for our listeners. We'll see how he was received. Anyone who was listening to our Saturday night Let's Run.com after dark, I regret to inform you that Robert Johnson is sober for this episode. He's sipping on a diet or a Dr. Pepper. No IPAs this time, so. We might get a slightly more coherent Robert, but less of the wild hot takes that you've come to love. So, Robert, actually, I, I, I'm checking in. We're recording this at 11.30 in the morning. I assume you haven't had any IPAs yet today. That would be correct, John. Not sure what people are talking about. When you get old, you realize it's not about the, about the drinking. It's about the time of, time of day. I, to this, will still claim that I was completely sober. On Saturday night's show, it's just I'm not used to staying up till 2 a.m. at my age, but I'm glad everybody, I'm glad that the people enjoy it. I mean, I didn't think I said anything outrageous. I was very excited to see an old friend on the show at 2 a.m. listening. It I enjoyed it. The West Coast. I do think there was a moment where you suggested that Nathan Green and Parker Valby should have a child and that you would raise it. So. That was a little strange, but overall, I did like drunk Rojo, buzzed Rojo, quote unquote, sober Rojo, according to Robert. I think it's fun every so often. You just slug a beer and we kind of let some of the hot takes fly. And it, it's like, what do we say? Let's run.com. We kind of like to have those conversations you would have with a, a friend on a run or in a bar after the meet. And Robert took that a little bit literally. So did I. I had a couple of beers as well. But it was fun. I think we earned them after a long weekend in Austin. So, Ron, did you enjoy the show? Did you enjoy NCAA's? Did you enjoy Paris? 
I enjoyed it all, John. Point of clarification for the emailer said that Rojo was offering people $50 on the chat who agreed with him. No, Rojo owes his friend Tyson Sacco 50 bucks. He said, Tyson, if you're Tyson Sacco, I'll pay you 50 bucks. Rojo just confirmed it's him. Rojo, please send him the $50. There's got to be repercussions for this. And John, the meets were amazing. A little more excitement here. Since, you know, the show isn't just for the Supporters Club members. We loved you. Rojo was not on the show Friday. We had three world records in Paris in the greatest night in track and field in 24 years. Then we had NCAs. Caitlin Tui goes down. Britton Wilson goes down. Will Sumner arrives. We had another show. Tons of people have been signing up for both these because I actually was releasing about 20 minutes of each show. So thank you for everyone who signed up. John, it was record-breaking without Rojo on the show Friday. More sign-ups than ever. Well, I mean, literally it was record-breaking. We had three world records. So if we can just... Well, I think we've said it before. This is the formula. If we can just get three world records in every Diamond League, we're going to be raking in the cash at Let'sRun.com because everyone's going to want to hear us talk about them. Yeah, I mean, it's been great. Like, Eric, our web guy's like, a lot of sign-ups. I'm like, yeah. And, but it was momentous week for sports, for underdogs. Manchester City, can we call them an underdog? They've never won the European title. They're now European champions. Parker Valby missed second place, now the champion. And my over 40 soccer team won its first game since I've been on the team in three years. I don't know which is the biggest upset, John, but thank you, thank you. This has been my biggest sporting achievement in a decade. Undoubtedly, it's your soccer team. It's the biggest upset. Valby, I'm just going to say, I did predict she'd win the race in the Let's Run.com preview, so I don't view that as a tremendous upset, especially once Caitlin Tui was a DNS. Man City, I mean, come on. Yeah, what a, what a fairy tale. Um, so yeah, well, well done to well done. And we've got intern Alex here. Guys, he's booked another big guest for the podcast. I don't know if we reveal who it is. We're recording this on Thursday. Maybe we'll release it to Supporters Club members first. Maybe that's what we would do. So if you want to join the Supporters Club, I need a verdict. Are we still in the world record haze here? The aura of the world record? I've been giving huge discounts. I feel like the haze is dissipating a little bit, but I don't know what you're going to say. Well, then. If you haven't joined, join today. Let's run.com slash subscribe. Subscribe. Use code GOAT50. You can save 50%. We're only doing this for a world record, but then we hit a world record the next week. So I, I didn't really announce it in the middle of the podcast. We're keeping this ball rolling. So join today. Alex, should we reveal your guest or keep it quiet? Whatever you would like. I think there's more suspense when it's when it's a surprise. There, it's settled. That's how we we keep the young the youngins interested in our podcast. Thank you, Alex. I suppose we should start with Paris. Uh, we, we we haven't heard Robert's thoughts about this Wait. meet on the Wait show yet because he was spending some family time. Robert Weldon and I had it covered on Friday, so we're now four days removed from this meet. 
Robert, do you have any takeaways? Do you have any hot takes you want to unload that you didn't get the chance to on our Friday 15 show? Well, I'm glad Weldon asked for some excitement on the show because I did watch Paris. I complain about the goddamn iPhone. Everyone addicted to their screens, but I was with my mom and my five-year-old. We were going to putt-putt with a five-year-old and a three-year-old and just happened to be the perfect time for the meet. So I watched everything on the phone and then I was watching y'all's post-rate show and I actually was watching the show. I wasn't listening to it. I could just see you guys talking. It looked like John was putting people to sleep. Like show some excitement, people. So Paris was, it was unreal. I mean, er everything we had hoped for and more. Like, I guess my, my only criticism would be Man, can we get Germa and Ingebrigtsen in the same race? Let's make it a, a flat 3,000 and just see what happens. But it, it was just magnificent to see Ingebrigtsen just take off and just get just blast that light. And the lights are cool when, when you're ahead of them. And then, in, you know, in, in, in Germa's race, like the light was almost catching him. So people were like, oh, you know, I was reading the message board. Someone was like, the biggest thing is not the shoes, it's the lights. I'm like, come on, people. Like, Germa didn't even see the light. The light was behind him the whole damn time. He would have set that world record without the light. Let's be honest about it. And then Kip Yegon, I mean, my only criticism of, of the thing was that was the commentating. They, they got the time wrong. But they're like, he needs a 58. I know she needs like a 60 or 61. But then I got to 200 to go. I'm like, oh, I don't. I kind of was like, well, if they're saying it's over, it's over. I'm like, wait, could she close in like 28, 29? And she did it. But do I have any takes that were amazing? I guess I'll pose it as a question, John. They say practice makes perfect. But Faith Kip Yegon had not finished a 5,000 meters in 2,897 days. When I first came up with that stat, I thought, I guess practice makes perfect is dead. She didn't need to practice at all. And... She just broke the world record. But then, then I thought about it. I'm like, well, the, the people that like practice may be claiming that she's been practicing for the last 2,897 days. So is this the ultimate sign that practice is important or it's totally irrelevant? Well, I mean, it's not the ultimate sign. I think anyone who knows anything about running knows that practice is important. Also, can you translate 2,897 days to terms I will understand? You, Robert, this is something... You have some strange obsession with putting everything in terms of the exact number of days. That doesn't mean anything to me. I can't divide everything by 365. So can you, how many years is that? Seven years, 11 months, and five days. Okay. Her last 5,000 finish was July 4th, 2015. Now, it listed a DNF at, from Istaf Berlin. From last year, did she run that? I don't know if that was real or not. I don't know. July 4th, 2015. Weldon, what's the significance of that date? Wow. Is that the Evan Jager? Yes, it is. Paul? 2015 Paris Diamond League. Evan Jager, almost the first non-African to break eight minutes. A barrier that still remains for a non-African-born athlete. And that was eight years ago? Yep. Oh, man. Really holding on to that one, aren't I? Well, I'm the one who brought it up here. But, okay, with Kip Yegon, 
I can't say I was exactly shocked though, because I was looking at this race and I saw Latessa Baguide was in it. I was like, well, I just don't think Gide is strong enough to drop her unless she's running like 14 oh low. Like even I was like, could Kip Yegon run a 14-10? Yeah, I'm pretty sure if she has Gide to sit on the whole time. It turns out Kip Gide deserves a lot of credit. She ran 14.07. She did exactly what she needed to do to win this race. If she's going up against anyone else in the world, except maybe a prime Safan Hassan, she wins that race. But she had Kip Yegon, who we know trains with Patrick Sang, is pretty strong. She has that background as a two-time world junior cross-country champion, one of Robert's favorite stats. So yeah, she just sound her. But the thing that blew me away was how good she looked that last 200 meters. I, I just... Her running form was incredible. Her turn of speed, I think it was like 28-1 or something like that. I think the Diamond League, the official results, actually got her last lap wrong because they said it was like 61-1. But then there was another part of their website that said it was 60.6. That's what I had hand timing it so to do that at the end of a race where you're running a world record just staggering her endurance is incredible and yeah what an athlete i mean the last 200 it was a thing of beauty and i think each athlete i mean she's been so good for so long but there's a time in every season maybe even in your career when you're just on these last it's now probably 10 days. Faith Kipiagun's been on. I don't know how you surpass how do you surpass this now? I mean, like you can't, right? I mean sub 14. Yeah. We need a sub 14. That's what we need. Yeah, breaking the fifteen hundred meter and five thousand meter world records in the span of eight days. It's go up that is gonna be up there at all time with one of the great running accomplishments. I'm interested though. Like, what do you guys make of the timing of this? I feel like when we see world records, this is just intuitively, I'm not sure if this is backed by facts, but I feel like world records are more frequently set in like the middle of July, like one month out from worlds, someone's last blowout before the world championships. These ones are getting broken in the first weekend of June. We've still got two and a half months until the world championships. Is it just people like, okay, I'm going to rip a couple early in the season and hope to carry my fitness over? Or like, do you worry at all about... I know that Inga Brixen and Kip Yegon, they always time their peaks pretty well. They're in great shape at these championships. But like, is there any part of you that is like, wow, they're running really fast right now, but like, what's going to happen at Worlds? I don't think Kip Yegon's vulnerable in the 1500, but does that cross your mind at all? Not for me. I mean, I've always said they should hold the Kenyan trials the last day you can before the before the world Ethiopian trials. Don't select teams; just put a race right before the Olympics or Worlds, and pick the team that way. But I, I like it now. It's early uh, to me. It's like they, they could focus on this the time and then get ready for Worlds. I mean, I'm totally not worried about Ingebrigtsen. and he just started racing. This is what his second race of the year, and you know, Kipiega is so much better than everybody else in the 1500. You know. So yeah. I, I kind I mean, of actually like the timing of everything. But the thing that was interesting to me was we had a little bit of everything in these world records. Like Ingebrigtsen was just the, the perfect, like I, I do think the technology and it was him and he, he has a very modern setup and everything is threshold based and very scientific. And he was 
following the pacing, and then he just took off. Whereas Kip Yegan was a race, old school, and just blasted at the end, and you happen to get the world record. And then Germa was just, I'm going to go out super hard and see what happens. So uh, all three were a, a little bit different. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm really worried because Inga Brixen is pretty much always in shape. Like, when is there a time where he, of the year when he's not running fast? So I just find it more curious than anything that we get these athletes and this is the time for ripping it. But maybe it's because we have a lot of racing opportunities and then you know, there aren't quite as many in the middle of July to really set these things up. We has, we'll still have Monaco, but I don't know. Just interesting observation, I thought. And I'm happy that they happen because people will say that I'm obsessed with the shoes and always discounting things. I'm not like my, my college roommate and author with Running Buffalo is Chris Lear, who's like disillusioned. He says he doesn't like watching track as much more because it doesn't mean anything. To me, I've just adjusted and getting the new records is kind of fun. Like I, I've accepted that we're not going to, you know, slow down by two minutes in the marathon or whatever it is on the track. But from an intellectual standpoint, you know, if the shoes are worth three seconds in a 1500 and more in a, in a 3K or 5K and even in a 10K, the one thing that logically didn't really make sense and I was kind of having to make excuses for it was, okay, there's so many guys running 330, 331, 332, but why aren't the old school 330 guys running 327, 326? Why aren't we seeing the top end times get faster? And, and I think, well, we are. I mean, we, we've had men's 5K, men's 10K world records. Basically, now the 3K is gone. We'll probably have a world record attempt in the 1500 soon. Um, and, and on the women's side, obviously, all the records have gone. So, you know, like, do I think these times are necessarily superior to the world records of the past? No, not if you give those old guys shoes. Now, they had different drug testing, obviously, as well. So this, to me, was like, I mean, now it's making more sense to me that the, the shoes work for everybody. They they do work for everyone, but I'm still not convinced there were three seconds for the very best guys in the world in the 1500. Like, do you think Jakob Ingebrigtsen's only a 331 guy without the shoes? I don't know. I feel like wow. it might be a little less. I do still think they help. But the one thing I would also say is some of these world records had stood for a very long time. It's not like everyone's just going out and blowing the world steeplechase record out of the water every week. That one had stood since 2004. The two-mile had stood since, I think, 1997. So if suddenly you've got a new guy breaking the same record every week, then yeah, it is going to lose meaning. But you know, Kip Gagon and Ingebrigtsen are a generational talents. So do they have advantages compared to the previous generation? Yes, but I think the previous generation had advantages that the generation before them didn't have so yeah i don't know it's it's cool to see records but we i feel like we have had a lot of records been broken pretty much every distance record the last couple of years right from 1500 on up the only ones that have stuck around the men's 1500 the men's mile otherwise i think almost all of them have been broken in super shoes right i think yeah chep Koech, when she got the women's steeplechase record that was just before shoot super shoes, I think in 2018. One other thought I had about when, when I was watching Ingebrigtsen is, well, Kip Yegon too, I guess, but really Ingebrigtsen. 
Anyone in the 5,000? You want to beat him? You better make it fast from the gun. I mean, if they dawdle around for a mile, you're turning it into a 3K. And we know what he can do for 3K. I mean, the 3K might be his, you know, 3K slash two mile, his wheelhouse. I was having an argument. Was it, was it with you or John? Well, then, about saying, I wish Singer Britson had gone for the 3,000, the 720 versus the two mile. But I'm like, ah, uh, you know, he's not a speed guy. He probably views the two mile as more his event than the 3,000. And someone got really mad and said, they're the exact same event. I did. That 218 meters apart, it's ludicrous to argue, oh, the, the skill sets don't over, are different for those two races. John, let me give you the phone number of a former Cornell runner of mine by the name of Sam McKenzie. He has his PhD and his MD. He's a very smart man. I think he was a Heps runner up in the 1,000 meters. He viewed the mile in the 1,500 as completely different events. Okay, he's wrong. Well, yeah. Kind of kidding people, but... The, I'll say the one thing that is different is the mile starts on a turn and the 1,500 starts on a straightaway. So... There is a little bit more chaos early in, in the mile, and maybe some of the times are a little slower because there's more bustling. You can't even you can't ease into the situation. But physiologically, they're the same race. All right, should we turn to NCAs? Oh, by the way, we've been giving our takes on the show. We want to hear your takes. Unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, unlike Google. We have a phone number, 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786. Shouldn't we have a phone at the top of the homepage? A phone icon, number? Well, I do have one final take. Question, concern from Paris. We did discuss this a little bit on the Friday 15, but again, didn't hit from Robert on that one. So I want to know, Robert, we saw Keely Hodgkinson of Great Britain open up incredibly strongly. 155.77, pretty close to even splits. I think it was 57.58, something like that. And she was flabbergasted at how quickly she ran. You know, she. This was a season opener outdoors, and she lowered her personal best, lowered the British record. And traditionally, this has been a woman who's timed her peak pretty well. She's run her fastest time of the year in the Olympic final in 2021 and then the World Championship final last year. And I'm curious to know, a thing Mo, her greatest rival, but a woman she's never beaten, has yet to run any race since last year's World Championships. She has reportedly been focusing a little bit more on the 1500 and will run that event at USA's. Is there anything for a thing Mo to be worried about after Keely Hodgkinson's very strong opening run? There's plenty to be worried about. I've publicly stated on this podcast, I think he wrote down the date that she would not win the world's nothing Mo would not win the world title this year. And the reason is simple to me. Like Keely is very good. It was very close last year. Keely almost beat her last year. And Keely has Kept everything the same, right? Same coach, nothing's changed. And indoors, like despite the fact she was winning everything, she seemed upset like that she should be running faster. So I don't know if it was a thing where she was ripping the workout sometimes or forcing the workouts, but sometimes your workouts at a higher level, 
It sounds like the thing that I loved about this race was she wasn't expecting it, like the pure shock on her face. Like normally someone that good is not shocked by what they do. And it was amazing. So it sounds like she wasn't expecting to run that fast. If she gets fitter from here, it would be hard for anyone, any female on planet Earth to beat her. Particularly, but, but my concern is I'm not sure I think Mo is going to be at the same level that she was last year. Has no track record of coaching these, these athletes. And I, I think we've seen Parker Valby is the perfect example. Your coach can quit on you and leave in the middle of the season and you can still be great. So the athlete makes the coach, not vice versa, but I'm not, that doesn't mean that coaching is irrelevant. So now Keely Osha opening up that fast. So those shows though, it's quite possible that I think Mo is in great shape and just blast it. I'm not saying, I'm not ruling that out, but it just seems suspicious to me that she didn't run the LA meet, that she hasn't raced this year. Well, I don't know if suspicious, suspicious is the one. Not, not, a, not in a like, drug sense, but suspicious in a fitness sense. Yeah, well, Bobby Kersey has said, you know, he won't, he'll only race his athletes when they're ready. And if he's determining, okay, she's not ready to run in LA, her hometown, she's not ready to run in Paris, even though she flew out to Paris with their training group, she was at this meet and didn't run it. You're like, okay, is she really fit and ready to go? Or maybe they're just like, hey, the plan all along has been to run this 1500 in New York. Yeah, it, it could be she's very fit. We know how talented she is, but I think the takeaway for me is she's going to have to be at her best or very close to it to beat Keely Hodgkinson if Hodgkinson can keep this up or if Hodgkinson improves. And we just don't know. We don't know where she's at because she hasn't raced since July of 2022. But I actually, since you said, talked about that, I think when I determined the podcast, when I just boldly said, the thing Mo's not winning the world title was the podcast when it came out that he, when he was quoted in the LA paper saying that she could win the Olympic gold in 1500. To me, that showed such a lack of understanding of the event and middle distance running at an elite level that it, it scared me that he didn't know what he was doing, which is crazy because he's one of the most accomplished coaches you know, in U.S. history, but, you know, just because you're an accomplished sprint coach does not mean you're an 800 coach. I, you know, I, I'm not sure how, how good of a coach uh, Arthur Litter would have been in the women's discus. The women's discus is a little bit different than, like, going from sprints to mid-distance, but point taken. Keeley did just open up at 155. So I said this in the Supporters Club podcast. If anyone else in the world can open up at 155, it's – I think Mo, but I'll reiterate this point. There's one big difference. Keeley ran indoors. I think it's not raced since world. July 24th, 2022. I mean, that's crazy. I guess she's got no reduction clause in her contract, but the whole Bobby thing, I think he has a plan for every athlete like Sydney McLaughlin, she goes out so hard in this 400 in Paris, blows up completely. And if you're looking at sprint Twitter, people are like, he probably told her to go out. She'll be fine. It's probably going to help her long-term. Bobby with the thing, I like the idea of her getting more endurance. But this talk of Olympic 1500 meter champion, maybe he's trying to motivate her, but I, it was so off base for me. It made me a little bit worried. 
I mean, I would love it though. At this point, I said it. Your first 800 of the years of world championships. Let's see how this goes. And one other point in the 800. At least in America, we almost view a thing as untouchable. Like she's never lost as a professional. But think how differently we would view this entire thing if Keely Hutchinson had run point. What was the difference at Worlds? 0.08. That's crazy. In a mid-distance event, 0.08 is nothing. I mean, they were essentially the same, but a thing was better. And that's how we judge it. And then the whole narrative gets built up around it completely differently that I think most untouchable and Keeley's, you know, this is silver medal. Well, she's untouchable because she only races when she knows she's 100% ready to go. And when she is, she's she is unbeatable because she's better than everyone else in the 800. But she didn't run Milrose and for nebulous reasons, but sort of like, oh, well, she wasn't ready. To, to me, the reason why she ran Milrose, the translation there is she wasn't in good enough shape by her standards. She w- might have been vulnerable if she raced. Uh, it was also, we saw Milrose last year. She showed up. She was in pretty good shape, but she dropped out. I think she just wants to make sure she, she there's a lot of pressure coming with being the Olympic champion when you're 19 year old. Then wh- where do you go from there? When you set the American record in the Olympic final, I think there's suddenly going to be external pressure. Okay. Now I, I can't lose to anyone for any reason because I, I just did this at 19, so I must constantly be improving. And I think sometimes there is a benefit to learning how to lose, to getting into a race and realizing, hey, you don't have to w- win every single time out, but she's still young. She only just turned 21. I think she's figuring those things out. And I think if she's running the 1500, she is going to lose some races this year. She That will be uh, a learning process because she's not going to be close to winning the U.S. title in the 1500 this year. That's uh, unless, yeah, I'd be very surprised if that's the case. I think losing can be very good for an athlete. Sydney getting beat, good thing for her. Keeps her motivated. A thing, Mo, I've never seen her lose. So outside of that Milrose mile, I think it'd be good for her. And yeah, John, she's 21. This whole age thing is interesting, right? Because like, once you're the champion, we almost make you older. Jakob's only 22. Will Sumner, 19. And Rosen Willis had an off NCAs. She's only 18. One thing about Sydney for me, the post-race reaction to her getting beat, she ran, what, 49 high, tying up. Was classic Let's Run. I think I texted the staff and I was like, this is why I love Let's Run. On a day where three world records were set and those threads were super hot for a while. But when I, before I went to bed on, when was that, Thursday or Friday night? Super hot on a Let's Run was was Sydney gets destroyed. And I don't know. I just thought it was the classic, like the fans are into this. This was enter- entertaining. But she shouldn't really be getting a rip for it. Like, what do we want her to do? We want her to write, run Diamond League meets. She ran a Diamond League meet. We want her to go for greatness. She went for greatness. I mean, when I, I watched that first 200, I thought, oh, my God, this criticism of Bobby is crazy. I guess he really does just wait till they're ready to break the world record. 
because she was like, I thought maybe I had it wrong in my head. I, I was watching again on a phone. I'm like, isn't this Paulino next to her? And she just ran her down in the first hundred meters. I'm like, what's going on here? It didn't compute. Now it didn't compute physiologically either. And she tied up, but the race also does prove something else. I've said this 400 world record talk is nonsense because the stat people have, have analyzed this. She would have to go out even faster than what she did in Paris and close well, not blow up. So I do think it was good to, to get that in her legs, you know, but what do you mean she'd have to go out faster than she did in Paris? She went out in 2266. Did Marie de Kock go out faster than that? Apparently. That's what everybody was saying. Huh. Well, I'm not I'm not ripping Sydney for racing. And look, if I if her sole goal was just to win that race, uh yes, the tactic was bad. But I'm assuming Bobby told her something like, Hey, go out super fast, see if you can handle it, or here's what split I want you to be at. Cause she doesn't do anything Bobby Kirsty doesn't tell her to do. So and yeah, there were a few years ago she was running the hundred hurdles, and people were saying, "What the hell is she doing? Why isn't she racing four hundreds? And then she goes out and breaks the world record a couple times. So, yeah, I'm not questioning that in terms of a long term development. I'm glad she ran this event, but I also it was you know it, it can be good sometimes to see some of these invincible athletes like, oh, actually there is some drama. If she just immediately goes into the four hundred and wins everything and breaks the world record first time out, well, that's not really interesting as a fan of the sport. It's great for her, but now it's like, this is even more interesting. Now I'm excited to see how she learned from this when she races Paulino again, if she races Paulino again. She still hasn't committed what event she's doing at the World Championships. According to Wikipedia, Cox in her 400 world record, her 100-meter split was 11.3 seconds, and her 200 split was reported as to be 22.4 seconds. God. As for the Sydney thread, it was super popular, but the most upvoted post from King999. I have to say, many will trivialize this, but this is what a season opener might look like. It's only friggin' June. Gotta run some races. Seriously. 171 upvotes, two downvotes. And that was one thing. Yeah, people are going to discuss these things, but with Tui, Sydney, Britton Wilson, we had three major stars go down in flames. I don't know how you want to say it. But the, a lot of the fans, they understand it. I think that's what we need. We need people to debate it. But should we turn to NCAAs, guys? And I think start with Caitlin Tui. Yeah, because... Uh, my big takeaway from this was there is no reason to like crucify them for getting beat. These We praise them for attempting these audacious doubles. And then when it turns out these things are actually really hard to do, it's hard to win two NCAA titles in the sprints 25 minutes apart. It's hard to win the 1500 when you're not really a 1500 runner and then come back and run the 5K. I'm not going to suddenly rip them because they got beat. They shot for greatness. And they came up short. It's okay. They're still mega talents. They will have another day in the sun. They've been great throughout the whole season. Uh, Tui's outdoor season, not quite as good as her indoor season or cross-country season, but she still ran 15.03, which is the fastest by a collegiate ever outdoors. Britton Wilson, phenomenal season, smashing the 400-meter 
collegiate record multiple times. I think it's great for, that they went for them, but again, they're hard. These are hard things for a reason, and I think it makes us appreciate if someone ever does pull off one of these doubles. We're like, wow, that was really impressive because look at the look at someone as great as Caitlin Tui or Britton Wilson, and even they couldn't do it. It humbled them. Yeah, let's take these separately. Tui, well, I said last week she wasn't going to win both, but that was just mainly because I thought, okay, it's really hard to to double. I mean, she's running the 5,000 tired. Volby's going to be fresh. But once I get into Austin, I actually missed the 1,500-meter prelims, but I rely on the great vision of John Galt. He said Tui didn't look good. I saw what some of these other girls were closing in. I'm like, she's not a 1,500-meter runner. She's not good enough to run. You know, what, what do we always say? If you want a front run, you got to be way better than everybody else. She's not way better than everybody else in the 1,500 this year. She's not going to win this, and she didn't. And then she didn't even run the 5,000. But I just wish, looking at it now, God, this could have been the hot take of all hot takes. I wish I had seen this coming. Like this, you know, and, and I said on the Saturday night show, talked to a top NCAA coach, and they said, that's not Tui. She hasn't been on top of her game. Even the, the NC State people have said she's just – yeah, you know, maybe it's maybe it's obvious to them now, but it wasn't. Maybe they were hoping that she's not quite there. Like it's sometimes you can force the workouts; it's just not coming effortless. But the signs were there that this was a struggle. I mean, indoors, she was running fourteen four twenty four in the in the mile. That's equivalent to what four twenty four in the mile is what for fifteen hundred, John. Four twenty four. I don't have the conversion. It's like four oh four, Robert. I mean, do you need John Kellogg to convert a fifteen hundred to a mile for you? Just trying to be accurate, John. I didn't want to just mouth okay, off. It's roughly four oh four. Last year, you know, she had run four oh six. This year, that would be four oh four. So you're seeing improvement, but then she goes out and she runs four oh eight. Yeah. Now. Talked to somebody was who was there who said I you know I didn't watch that race said she went out you know tried to run four flat ties up but then then she goes and runs the five thousand runs fifteen oh three says she feels terrible and, and and you know as John Kellogg says that fifteen oh three that's ten seconds behind what was good for her so she's still good but this is not this wasn't the Caitlin Tui of indoors this wasn't Pete Caitlin Tui she was stagnating or taking a step back. And, you know, it, it's fine. We do it. Sometimes I think if you're close to where you were the year before or the season before, it's okay. You, you stabilize. And then the next season you take a four, you know, a big break forward. Like Hobbs Kessler, he didn't run better last year than the year before, but now he's way better. But I just wish I kind of had seen the writing on the wall. But for the actual race, mega props for going for it. When she went out hard, John, you and I were watching together. We're like, baller. This is what she needs to do. She needs to try to make it fast. I don't really like the way she did it in hindsight. I think it was too fast between 100 and 300. Um, you know, it's easy to say now I would have waited till 200 to push or maybe even 600 to push um, because then you had the wind at your back and just kind of gradually squeeze it down. I got an interesting um, text on the 844-538-7786 line from a podcast listener. I was thinking about the Caitlin Tui 1500 meter strategy. 
She should have approached it like German Fernandez did at 2009 NCAs. Take the lead at 500 meters to go and squeeze it down. German didn't have the most speed, but he had the best speed endurance like Caitlin Tuohy probably did over the field. Waiting until 500 to go would have surprised the field as they all expected her to take it from the gun. I would have gone farther than that. I would have gone from, again, a minimum, um, I think, 1,000 out. I'm just not convinced there's any strategy that would have won her the race because I don't think she's winning in a kick. And the field was too deep. You've got a bunch of 408 and 409 women in this race. Tui, her season's best is 408. Uh, you know, she ran 406 last year, but like we said, I don't think she's a four. She might not be that kind of runner now. I just don't think she was fit enough as a 1500 runner to just run away from everyone, even taking off midway through. But yes, that probably would have raised her chances of victory slightly. Let's give credit here. Maya Ramston of Harvard running a great race to get the national title as well. Well, there you go. At least she mentioned her name, John. But like, come on. You said you don't think Tui could have won. You don't think there's any way Tui beats someone named Maya Ramston, who, well, you probably could have named her because she's an Ivy Leaguer. But besides that, nobody was talking about winning this race. I mean, she ran great, but come on, Tui, there are scenarios Tui could have won this race. I, I don't know. Weldon, here's the difference. Maya Ramston's a miler. Caitlin Tui is not a miler. Like, most of the other people no, no. in this field no, are John. milers. Caitlin Tui is not. Caitlin Tui is not a professional miler, but she's a miler as much as a miler as Maya Ramsden is. I mean, let's be honest. The, the reason why we were worried about Tui, about Tui in the 1500 is because she doesn't have great speed. Well, Maya Ramsden doesn't have great speed either. Now, Coach Gibby said, hey, Ramsden and Tui are both quick, but I think their speed is probably comparable. In hindsight, we thought Tui has to lead to win this because she doesn't have great speed. In reality, a person behind her who had like a 410 PB coming to NCAs wins it by just running a 408-60 PB. Tui, even on an off day in the wind, runs 411. If she had actually sat in the pack, she might have, well, no, I think though, if she sits in the pack, to be honest, the Oklahoma State Kenyon wins this race with, with Blastom Speed because by going out hard, she took out the kick of the people that tried to go with it. And we've talked about this before. When not winning is a disaster, you run the race a certain way. When you really are set on winning, you run in a certain way, particularly if you're the favorite. Then if you're just trying to do the best that you can do, and if maybe a third place is great, and if you, if you get lucky and win, it's even better. That's what Maya Ramsden did. And it just shows you, in hindsight, maybe the best strategy in any race is no strategy. Just run your, run the best race for you. And it's like you're almost all doing time trials to each other. And then whoever gets to the finish line first will be declared the winner. Well, I guess I can see that argument there, Robert. I think, yeah, if Caitlin Tui runs Maya Ramsden's strategy and there's someone up front stretching out the race and Tui gets to be the one responding to that and kicking off of that, maybe then that does help Caitlin to it because it's a faster race. Her kick is a little more potent compared to the others who might it might have been sat from. But look, I can't tell you what Maya Ramston's top speed is. All I know is she won the NCAA 1500 title, so she's got to have a pretty good kick because this was not like a really, really fast race. So 408 is pretty quick time. But also, Robert, please stop just judging people's speed on 800-meter races that they run and that they don't give a shit about. You're saying, oh, she ran 209 at the Yale-Harvard meet in April 2022. That was her last 800. Therefore, she doesn't have 800 speed. I'm sorry, that's just a horrible measure of how whether someone can kick or not to select some random dual meet from a year ago 
probably run in 45 degree temperatures. That's not a good measure for judging whether someone has speed that can be used in a 1500 or not. She had plenty of times to run it in fast in high school. She didn't. It's like Tui. Tui's PB is 209 as well. So there you have it. When, all right. When did Caitlin Tui run it? Probably some high school dual meet or something like that, right? What, can you please tell me when Caitlin Tui ran her 209 personal best, Robert? It was in high school. I know that much. By the way, we'll, we'll do it right now. Is this a violation of the NIA rules, John? Or can we put it in a trust? $1,000. We can talk about what Tui should do for the rest of the season. Just for the record, Caitlin, Caitlin Tui's 209 personal best. This came from her sophomore year of high school, May 2018. She hasn't run one since 2019. So that's what you're judging her off of, is a high school race when she was a high school sophomore, Robert. My 1,500 guys at Cornell never ran the 800 either. So I understand it. Bruce Hyde, Oliver Tassinari. And I would have done the same thing. Just They were stronger than other people. They were fitter, and they would blast the into the mile and win it. So if you're a better miler than that, if we had the Caitlin Tui of indoors, she would have won this race no problem. If she's in 424 shape, she could have sit in the back and just blow them away. She, she was anxious about it. She didn't win. Where do you go from here? If I'm Tui, I shut the season down. Right now, shut it down. Uh, Lori Hennis was getting criticized on the message board. Some moron, well, I don't know if it was criticized. Like, anyone can say anything on the internet. There's a thread like, why do these people have to run her into the ground? And it got like 80 down votes and 20 up votes. Like, Lori Hennis did not run Caitlin Tui into the ground. Uh, I, I counted it up. She's run like I'm, I'm either eight or 10 races total outdoors, with, with like five of those being 1,500 meters. And Maya Ramston has run 13 races outdoors. So, like, Tui ran less than Maya Ramson. They both ran the same amount of races indoors, 10. Like, it was not an exorbitant amount of running. She ran one race at ACC's. Like, I, I think they handled it very well. And I praise Lori Hennis to the high horse for taking it out of the 5,000. Once the 1,500 result comes in, you're like, hey, this isn't Tui. She tells, she tells her, I feel terrible. And they're just like, no. Now, I know Tui probably wants to go to USA's. Maybe I'd have her jog around for two weeks, see how she's feeling, give her a workout or two, and see if she wants to do it. She can do it, but it seems like a long shot to me. I, I think I'd shut her season down. She's been racing at a high level since cross country in the fall. She is on the downswing. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe you have her do a workout or two, but it's going to be tough to make that 5K team. Uh, I know the Cranny and Schweizer, Schweizer hasn't raced at all this year. Cranny did not look good when she ran at Mount Sac a couple weeks ago so some of those spots might up, be up in the air but there's still some other there's enough women running sub 15 right now Wayne Kaladi, Ellie Hennis Emily Infeld you know Jose Andrews if she's in this event I don't think Tui's going to make the team the shape she's in I think you just refocus you come back for a strong full cross country season and then you can make the decision after that whether it's a ton pro or not and the option I said, if you come back for track next year, again, cross country is tough because anything but a win is, is viewed as a disappointment. And, but if you do come back for track, one option I would have is it is hard to be like going for all these records indoors emotionally and then come back for, you know, outdoors. One option I would have is reg not run the indoor season. You know, you could hop in a race or two, I guess, if you wanted to, but don't do NCAA indoors and just go back for outdoors. And you're really just training for the trials, but you might want to try to run the 1500 at NCAAs just to, you know, 
prove that you could win that race, work on some speed, which would be interesting. But we did, uh, intern Alex, I had him do some interesting research on how hard it is to repeat as an NCAA champion. So 11 women won an NCAA title indoors this year. Only three of them won an NCAA title outdoors. That's 27.3%. For the men, it was four out of 14, which is 28%. So 27, 28% of the people from indoors to outdoors. We're not talking last year to this year. We're just talking indoors to outdoors. And if you look back at last year, there was a number of returning people. There was 10 women who won an NCAA title last year outdoors that returned this year. Only three won the title. And for the men, seven guys came back, including Dylan Jacobs. Zero won outdoors this year. So that kind of surprised me. But no shame in losing. I'm glad she tried to do it. And I think that Lori and these people are doing a great job for them. For her, I really do. The criticism bothered me. Yeah, I don't think she's running her into the ground. You think that Lori Hennis is going to have a double at NCAAs if that's not something Caitlin herself wants to do? They're not in the hunt for the team title. I think deliberately they didn't race her a ton outdoors. You know, she comes in, she runs that 1500 at Wake Forest. She runs a 5k at that meet just to get the standard she went did one blowout 5k to try to get the sub 15 the collegiate record at mount sack and then she runs the 10k which she was basically tempoing at accs like i think Lori hannis managed the workload as well as she could this outdoor season the only thing that's a joke is that she had to run the 5k to get the standard even though she'd already run 15 on three like come on NCAA, can we just stop this nonsense it has to be a counted, countable meet. Yeah, Costiari Tinguza shot at NCAAs last year as well. So, a bit silly. Okay, let's move to... Or, I mean, do we want to talk about Britton Wilson at all? We kind of glossed over her on the Saturday show. I mean, I would just say she got... Britton Wilson, there are a couple things. One, her shins seem like that may have been an issue. She's been battling it all season. But the thing is, all of her doubles had done, she had no problems with them, even in the prelims on Thursday when there wasn't a huge gap. But then the finals, there's a shorter gap. She's also going up against a fantastic runner. Like, Britton Wilson's run 49-13 this year. That's the NCAA record. Rashida Adeleke won the 400 in 49-20. So that's the second fastest time in NCAA history. Wilson would have had to be at her best to beat her. Wilson still ran 49.64, which is a time that only a thing Mo and Adeleke have ever run faster than. She ran a great 400 final. It just wasn't her absolute best race, and she was up against a really, really great athlete and got beat. I think either... I don't know if it was the mental toll or the physical toll, but she clearly didn't have it in the 400 hurdles final, and that's why she faded in that one, but... I don't know, a couple of factors going in. Again, I applaud her for going for this. It's just, you know, 49-20. That's a really, for a collegian, that's a fantastic time. Wilson would have had to be at her best to beat her, and she wasn't. Correct. I, I just think it's misleading. Like, she ran a time that would have meddled the world in the 400 and got beat. Wait, do we, do we really, coming into the year, we didn't view her as someone capable of doing that. We viewed her as a good 400 hurdle. We didn't view her as a world's medalist in the 400. So she runs well, gets beat, and then, you know, I didn't think it was a, be a, that big of a deal. 
but you know, what was it like an hour less or 30 minutes less than it was originals. Plus you've got to run a, a you know, higher quality race. So she runs what about 1.8, 1.9 seconds slower than she did in the, in the 400 hurdles or regionals. Not a big deal. Great effort. And she's doing it uh, on, on, you know, shins. All right, I'd like to talk about the, the women's 800. This was a big matchup. Rosine Willis, indoor champion, the world junior champion. Talk about pressure. Girl who beat off thing when she was a freshman in high school. Racing Michaela Rose. And I, I thought coming in, I did see this one. I think Rose is going to win it. I'd watch Rose race Nikki Hiltz when they both ran 159.08. And Rose was out hard and just tied up. And then, John, it was great. After the prelims, she's like, I will not think Mo's 157.7 collegiate record. But it was really windy in the day of the 800 final. But she didn't change her plan. She just went out hard. And I kind of thought, John, coming off that final turn, 650.700, I'm like, this is going to be just like outdoors. She's got the lead. She ties up. I mean, outdoors, she was only 50 meters from the finish. In indoors. Indoors, excuse me. Rose was tired coming home. And there was three or four people lining up, but it's the classic case you often see in 800s. Everyone's tired at 700, and they just, it's like everyone's going to slow down the same amount. So she went for it, and in this case, she was rewarded for it, unlike Tui and Wilson. And she gets the win, only person to break two. It was, you know, a great race. Considering the win, I think she could run 158. And right now, I mean, Ajay Wilson's 158, and she's second in the world. So there's a lot of girls, women in the 158 range. There's one person way better than that. So I, I think this certainly puts her in the in, in the in the hunt for USA's. And if she makes, look, if you make the US team, you've got a shot at meddling. It, it, let's be realistic about that. Well, it's still going to be tough because I feel like the lost lost year, at least, Mo Hodgkinson and. Mary Marat were just on another level from everyone else. But, you know, things can change from year to year. It is very interesting to see where she stacks up in the American ranks, Robert, because this was a fantastic run by Mikkel Rose, well-deserved NCAA title. You've got R.J. Wilson as the U.S. leader. I'm putting R.J. Wilson on the team. 158-1. That's almost a second faster than any other American this year. She always makes these teams very experienced. I'm very confident she'll make it. I think Mo has to buy. Don't think she'll be in the 800 at USA's, so you don't need to worry about her. But then the, the mix behind her, you've got Rose. You've got Sage Hodeklecker, who just ran 159.01 in Paris and who was terrific last year, ran 157 on the Diamond League circuit. Nikki Hiltz is number three, but they're probably doing the 1500 at USA's, so don't really need to include them here. Raven Rogers has not looked good in her races so far. She did run a season's best of two flat point oh oh in Paris, but she's looked off the pace. We know her talent, but will she turn it around in time for USA's? Wait Still a second, John. Here. Raven was in the Paris race? She finished 10th. I think, like, maybe I saw her on the start line and then completely honestly forgot till now, because... That meet was so crazy, and we're trying to recap stuff, and Kiwi runs 155. I knew Ajay ran 158, but this is Raven Rogers. You know, on the Supporters Club podcast, you didn't notice Anthony Rotich in the steeple, but he's way back at 816. This is, a, this is 
Olympic silver medalist. I'm used to not seeing Raven Rogers in a race until the final hundred, and then she comes on and runs people down. She hasn't been doing that. Actually, a few weeks ago, Portland Track Festival, Nia Aikens did that to her. She ran her down in the home straight. So I don't know. I'm not counting Raven Rogers out, but she's a question mark for sure. And I will give a shout out Nia Aikens, the US indoor champion. She's looked good this year. It's always a war for these spots. And the way I see it, I think it's Wilson. I don't know if RJ Wilson will win USA's. I would say she's the favorite. And I'm very confident she'll be on the team one way or another, but it will be an absolute battle for those final two spots. Guys, wasn't this the segment we were going to bring in intern Alex to provide his expertise on the women's 800 meter scene? I said off air and John took this as a dig. He's expertly qualified on this matter because he has run 159 in the 800 meters. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you. How do you see USA's breaking down in the 800 this year on the women's side? And would you like us to set up a $1,000 match race with any of these women? Michaela Rose. I don't want to do Ajay. I think Ajay would just sit on you. But I think you got a better shot. What, what type of 800 runner are you? Are you a, do you like to... Are you a, a speed guy that ties up, or do you like to sit in the pack and blast it? I don't know. The multiple times that I've run 159, I did it different ways. So I don't know. Kind of more of an even split type of guy. I guess who would you rather race? Like straight up match race, live on pay per view. I can put you. It's you versus Michaela Rose, or you versus Ajay Wilson. Uh, I mean, Ajay Wilson has to be the the, the better choice because she's more accomplished, not a collegian. I know, so I wouldn't want to race her. I wouldn't want to lose to her. So if I was you, I'd race Michaela and try to sit on her. He wants to face the best, Robert. He wants to face the best. Come on. Uh, well, that's why he's our intern. <laughs> and hey, wait, at NCAs, there was some dude who went from like 159 to 146. And he was coached by Robert. I got you coached at Cornell. Is that true? This is a true story. Aiden McCarthy of Cal Poly went to high school in California, was coached by the great Jason Oswald, who I coached at Cornell. And we made a rare mistake. We were working until 2 a.m. most nights. John put up the YouTube interview with him, and he put Aiden Hutchinson, who's a Detroit lineman, Detroit Lions lineman. So I got a text from Jason saying, hey, you messed up the name of my guy. And I was like, your guy? I knew that Jason had coached John Lester, who was a superstar in high school and is now at Stanford as a subformant miler. I'm like, you coached this guy too? He, this is Aiden McCarthy, Cal Poly. He's run 146 this year. I think he won, he won one of the semifinal heats. I was like, how come I've never heard of him? He's like, well, in high school, he ran 159 and 419. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is an amazing story, by the way. Alex, this should inspire you. He could only, I said, well, and it was COVID year. So COVID shut down his senior season. And I said, well, what would he have run? He's like, well, we were really optimistic and we were hoping he could run 412 in the 1600. I said, well, what about the 800? He's like, we weren't thinking about the 800 because he couldn't break 54 in the quarter. Now, apparently that's a lie. Aiden took, took offense to that. He said, hey, I ran 53 in the quarter. But he's now running 53 back-to-back, -back, which is crazy. I mean, he ran 146 in the final. 
again. So, Alex, what 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 is your four hundred PB? If you're coached properly, if you, if you if you transfer to Cal Poly, they can have you run that times two in a few in a few years. My four hundred PB is also fifty three. Well, there we go. We're gonna have you running one forty six, winning the NCAA title next year. I mean, it's crazy, right? I asked him after the final. I said, "How did you improve so much?" He's like, "Well, I would just tell people like you're at some people are at a different different level of physical improvement. He hit puberty late, but it is a crazy story." So, I mean, it is also a nice situation for an 800 runner when you're on the Cal Poly roster, and then one of the best mid distance co- coaches in the country is hired as coach. So you got to give some credit to Ryan Van Hoy as well. But obviously, yeah, great, great story for Aiden McCarthy. Uh, and yeah, one, he ran 146 in the final. Let's talk about this race. He negative split a 146.7, and that got him seventh place in this 800 meter final. It was just really, it was really tough. Uh, every guy in this race negative split it. There were six PBs among the top eight runners. The fastest of all of them, Will Sumner, the Georgia freshman. 53-1-2 on the first lap, 51-1-5 on the second lap. We were stunned. This was had me flashing back to Donovan Brazier in 2016. The races played out very differently. 2016, Brazier was just able to sit on Brandon McBride and then pull away late. He runs 143-55, collegiate record as a true freshman. Summer, instead, he takes the lead here and then just Oh my god, 51 close off of that pace is absurd. But in terms of the talent, in terms of the sprint speed, in terms of the natural endurance, I see a lot of parallels between Will Sumner and Donovan Brazier. Yeah, it was amazing, John. And because the guys behind him ran well and he blew them away, winning by 1.48 seconds. And I, I had time to do some research. Well, actually, the USTFCCCA website has this. I found it. But, you know, I was like, how often does somebody win an 800 by that much? Between 1962 and, and this race, there was only one other person that had won the 800 or 880 yards by more than one second. And that was Andrew Weeding, who, you know, made the Olympics and ran 330. So th- that was crazy. And what... I didn't – I mean, everyone knew Sumner was a huge talent. He was you know, trying to get the 800 high school record last year. He's fast. He's running these four-by-fours. But I like indoors, I was not impressed by him. He was super smooth. But, like, I was just looking it up. Like, in the final, he went out next to last. And indoor track, that's kind of tough for an 800. That race, he was. It just went out so much harder. Like that was just the opposite. Navasky Anderson took it out in fifty point five five. So Sumner goes out in fifty two forty five, and then tied up and ran fifty nine oh two. So he went fifty two fifty nine versus fifty three fifty one. But like, yeah, John, I, I, it's almost unfair to compare someone to Donovan Brazier, but to me, it's almost like the exact same mindset. Like this guy is super fast. But his natural endurance is insane. Remember when Brazier was in high school, my buddy, Chris Catton, who now runs, runs CCG, the online coaching thing for high schoolers, he's the one that texted me and says, Grant Fisher's not the best guy in Michigan. It's this guy, Donovan Brazier. 
And I think what he was seeing was this guy had just massive speed, but he could go out and run 410 a mile off of no training. So I asked Will Sumner after this, I said, hey, did you ever do like cross country in high school? He's like, well, they threw me in two meets as a joke. Like, I guess the team needed him or something. This is a guy not, not running high school cross country and he runs 1640s for 5,000. Like, that's sick. I had to train, right? Freshman year, I was running like all out to run 1845 on a track. I was a distance runner. Like, and they just did a wonderful job. He said he's done more weights. Pat Hanno, the coach, there's a lot of credit for that because this was just maestro. All right, Alex. I'm going to say you maestro, Robert. That word is pronounced maestro. Oh, well, the, the, the British may mispronounce it that way. I, here in Texas, we say maestro. Shailene Shalane. I don't even know her name. What is that woman who ran the marathon in one New York City one year? Shalane. It is Shalane. That one's quite simple. Uh, maestro. No, I look, I don't like criticizing people for mispronouncing words that they've only seen read. It just shows that you're a well-read person. But I felt like at this point in your life, nearing whatever arbitrary milestone birthday you'll encounter next month, you might have heard that word spoken a few times as well. But aren't we about our own reality? If I prefer to pronounce it that way, you should respect that. That's all I'll say, John. I'm not going to take the bait. Well then, Will Sumner, any thoughts? Like, I'm curious... Where does he stack up against the Americans right now? He ran 144.26. That's the fastest time by an American this year. He did it with a negative split. I don't think it's a stretch to say he could run 143 in a perfect race. But making a U.S. team, you got to be able to run 144, 145 after three rounds. He's never been in a U.S. senior championship before. Like, Does he have a shot to make the team? Would you pick him to make the team? Where do you see things right now? Are there three rounds in USA's, John, or two? Three. Now there were two at USA's and three at Worlds. That makes it harder for him. But there's no way you can't be an American 800-meter runner and watch that run and be shaking in your boots. It was a thing of beauty. I think the comparisons to Donovan ba- Brazier are perfectly appropriate. There's like a smoothness... W- that they can run at speed with. It looks effortless. And I mean, negative splitting a run that fast. People are saying, oh, it's amazing. It's how you want to look at it. Poster Hardloper said, reminder, Jim Ryan ran almost identical splits converted from yards. NCAA's 1966 on senders. And I think he's saying, oh, that's, this, that's a knock. You know, people have done this in the past. Jim Ryan was the, one of the greatest freak talents in the history of American running. I think you could put Jim Ryan out there today, give him some training and some of these shoes, and he would take it to these guys, or it could. Like, comparing anyone to Jim Ryan, I don't care if it was, God, nearly 60 years ago, that means it's an amazing effing run. Like, Jim Ryan is, is effing amazing. The Donovan Brazier... I mean, it's crazy. Here's where I went with Donovan Brazier this weekend. I was like, I keep hoping for Donovan to come back. I still think he's the highest upside of any of the Americans. I mean, Clayton Murphy's, Murphy's having a resurgent year, but I'm like, we just need Brazier back. And then after this run, I'm like, maybe we just need Will Sumner. 
Brazier was last good four years ago, John. At some point, three years ago, he was good and he was great in 2020. He was? Yeah. Remember, he went oh, to Monaco. Um, he ran like 143.1. Okay, three years ago. That makes me feel better. I forgot about that year. I went from 19, 2019 being world champion to I'm thinking Olympic trials next year, not making the team. You are correct. 2020 was a good year. And he would have been the Olympic champion if there were an Olympics that year. But if he's going to be hurt again this year, I'm going to be looking for the next new shiny object. And this isn't just some sh shiny object. This is like, it's it, it's got substance behind it. His dad was a high school 600-meter record holder. He, the kid barely runs, and he's blasting 143s. But like Donovan 144. Brazier. 144. But what happened to Donovan Brazier? 2016 Olympic trials. Flamed out in the first round. Right. We can't get too ahead. He's still 19 years old. He's still seventh at NC indoors or whatever it was. Three rounds at USA's, I think, isn't his forte. But would it surprise me if he made the US team? Not at all. And then if he makes the team, look out like anything's possible. Yeah, humongous talent. I think he'll be on the team. Well, lost earlier this year, I predicted he'd be on the 2024 Olympic team. So. I'm feeling good about that prediction right now. All right. I have a question for everybody. We'll start with intern Alex. Two point two questions. Who's more likely to win Olympic gold in 2024, Donovan Brazier or Will Sumner? And then the second question is, if you're Will Sumner, what do you do? Do you stay in college or do you go pro? We asked him about that. He said, if the offer's right, I'm, I'm definitely considering it. I'm definitely going to be biased in this answer just because, I mean, we just saw Will Sumner run amazing, and I do not know where Don and Brazier is in terms of his um, fitness and recovery from surgery and, and all that stuff. So if I had to pick one of the two of them to win Olympic gold, I, I would pick Will Sumner. Because I think, I mean, that's next year, this year, as John said, like running a 53, 51, 154, it wouldn't be surprising if he ran 143 in a perfect race when he does when he like positive splits a race, and 143 is good enough to win an Olympic gold, uh, any any gold, world championship gold or Olympic gold. And what was your second question? Oh, if he would go pro or not, um, next year. Yeah, I mean, I guess I agree with him. If he, if he got an offer that, if he got an offer that was. Enticing. I think he should go pro. All right, Robert, I'll tackle this one as well. I think the answer is Will Sumner is more likely to win gold. Donovan Brazier just hasn't been able to stay healthy. Will Sumner, we know, is very healthy and fit right now and could potentially be better than he is at the moment in 2024. Whereas you're saying to win Olympic gold, is Donovan Brazier not only going to be able to return and be healthy, but at the same level? where he was at in 2019, 2020. I don't know. I'm not convinced of that. So Sumner's more likely to win gold. Should he turn pro? I think it, he's taking the smart approach. It if he gets some monumental, humongous offer, like five years, no reductions, high six figures, yes, you take that deal. But 
I was talking to a top NCAA coach whose opinion I respect a lot about this, and he was essentially saying, look, there's value to coming back in the NCAA next year, and people have got the tar- you've got the target on your back, and you're learning how to run as a favorite. You're learning how to run with the pressure and the spotlight on you. Uh, that, that can be helpful. So I, I think... There isn't a rush for him to decide. If he gets a massive offer before USA's, yes, you take it. If not, I would wait to see how you do at USA's. If he shows up at USA's and wins, yeah, turn pro at that point. But if he shows up at USA's, he doesn't make the final, or he's, you know, he's like seventh or something, then I would say go back to Georgia for one more year because he's got a lot of the resources they've got at that campus. I guess if you stick around Georgia as a post-collegiate, you might still have access to them, but kind of like they're going to be better than most professional facilities you're given. And if you're, if he does turn pro, Robert, would you say he should go to a different coach? Would you think he should stick around? Like what's his path from turning professional? Who's he going to work with? That's a great question. To me, there's a huge value in team. When we had Niels Laros, if you didn't listen to last week's podcast, He's pro at age 18, but he's got a team to be with. You know, it's like one of the, in, in Europe, they're doing the, you know, these pro teams together. So if he goes pro, one option would be to just stay at Georgia, train with the team like I think Mo did, you know, stick with the team, stick with the campus. Nothing's different except you're pro. Coach Henry's done a great job. You know, the other option I was thinking is Atlanta Tri Club, they're looking for a new coach. Cut the rest of the team. And just make it the Will Sumner team. You know, heck, you can bring me in as the coach. Rich and I and I used to train for marathons together. He knows I know my stuff. I'll come down and coach Will. No, I would just get Pat Henner to coach the Dan Atlantic Track Club. And I sign him for that, then get him some of the deal with Adidas on the side. Isn't crazy, right? But you want to have a team environment, definitely. But I, I did while y'all were talking about this, we don't want to get too carried away here. I mean, what were the splits in Paris when how many guys ran 143? Seven. I just, I just looked up 2021 U.S. Olympic trials. Now, admittedly, when he won this race, Clayton Murphy, I said if he runs that race in the Olympics, he might win the Olympic gold. But he went 51-67 on the first lap, 51-50. So we're impressed by 53-51. How about 51-51? That's what the best guys in the world can do. And as you know, how good was Emmanuel career in college? He was damn good, right, John? He was running some super impressive times. Now, this margin of victory, though, is eye-popping. It really is. So. I'm not saying Will Sumner is going to win the gold medal this year. I'm, I'm not saying he's going to win next year either. But you asked who's more likely. To me, it's the guy who just ran 144 with a huge negative split. Yeah, Clayton Murphy, I mean, you got to give him credit. He just ran... 144.75 at the LA Grand Prix a few weeks ago. He looked great. If you're giving me Murphy versus Sumner at USA's, I'm taking the guy who's been there and done it before. I'm taking Clayton Murphy. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the question and give it to Weldon. Slightly different question. If they're both healthy, who's more likely to win gold? Sumner or Brazier? I know what I'm saying here. This is kind of crazy that I'm even thinking about it. How long is Donovan Brazier healthy for? I mean, the fact I'm having question marks is nuts. Right now, rewind Donovan Brazier 2019, Donovan Brazier, obviously. But right now, 
Is Donovan going to Brazier going to be there in a year? A lot of question marks. I can't believe I'm going to say this, Will Sumner. If they're both healthy, that's insulting to Brazier. I think we've forgotten how good Brazier was. I'm just going to read from y'all's recap. October 1st, 2019. Oh, my God. I didn't even know the specifics myself, but remember that stat only once in like 50, over 50 years, has anyone won NCAs by more than a second? Like 800s are supposed to be close. Donovan Brazier in 2019 broke the championship record, broke the American record, which has stood since 1985. He won in 142.34. Second place was 143.47. Like Donovan, Pete Donovan and Brazier was one of the greatest 800 runners we've ever seen in, in world history. This Sumner performance was one of the greatest runs we've ever seen in NCAA history. So I, I think it's great. We have Sumner has the potential to be like this. And, and, and you do see that anyone who is winning the eight or the 15 on the men's side at NCAAs generally nowadays, right? has to be considered someone who can normally win a world's medal. So amazing run for Will Sumner. Let's move up to the 1500. To me, Will Sumner was the biggest winner, 800 and up in this meet. Obvious winner, but the hidden biggest winner to me was Nathan Green. For the third straight NCAAs, Washington Husky has won the 1500 of the mile. Last year outdoors, it was Joe Waskim. Indoors, it was Hauser and, and now Nathan Green. So they've got a great group of milers. It was really fun, John, to see how they love each other. They're not, they don't seem to be jealous or upset, envy. But before the final, the guys, Sam Ellis told us this. Sam Ellis, we said, who's the most talented? Sam Ellis is like Nathan Green. We asked Andy Powell, hey, we can't believe he just said that that emphatically. He's like, I think everybody, Andy himself said, I think everybody would say that. So to me, that's the biggest, like he wins the, he wins the race. Tactically, he wasn't great. He had to run a lot more distance on the last turn than anyone else in that race. And he still beat him. So John, Nathan Green is a huge winner along with Jonathan Galt. Because John, in your preview, you said, look at what Nathan Green did at Pac-12s. If you run, if you close in 51 in the 342 race, you're not losing. Well, that's what he did at NCAs again, and he won. So congratulations, John, to you on that. But big winner for me was Nathan Green. Waskim gets second. Uh, I hate to say it. To me, he's a loser. Like, I love Joe Waskim. He was so pumped. He won it as a sophomore last year. If you win NCAs young, like Jared Nagus, to me, you're on my radar. But now I'm like, well, if I'm a shoe exec, why would I sign Waskim? I can get Nathan Green. He's better. Well, I'll just throw this out. Yari Nagus, 2019 NCAA champion, comes back, gets second at US at the NCAAs in 2021 to Cole Hawkett, who's younger than him, who just beat him in a race. Using your logic, why would you bother signing Yari Nagus? He's moved down on the podium. Oh, wait, he makes the Olympic team that year? Oh, and now he's a total superstar and he's running 347? I think it's possible, Robert, crazy theory, that these both, guys, both these guys are really good. And 
maybe they're both worthy of signing professional deals because they're both very big prospects. But I, I do think, Robert, if you look at the history of this event, you were noting like the people who have won it in the past, how they how their future turns out. Here are the last few NCAA champions in the 1500. 2016, Clayton Murphy, Olympic medalist. 2017, Josh Kerr, Olympic medalist. 2018, Ollie Hoare, one of the best milers in the world, Commonwealth Games champion. 2019, Yared Nagus, we just covered him, total stud. 2021, Cole Hawker, sixth at the Olympics. So now you've got Joe Wascom and Nathan Green are both in that club as well. Are they going to reach those heights? I, I don't know, but it's pretty damn good company to be in. And I think the really interesting thing about all these Washington guys is the three guys who've won NCAAs, they're all from fairly close to Seattle. Luke Hauser and Joe Wascom ran against each other. They're in the same conference in high school, I believe. Nathan Green's from Idaho. So, you know, next state over. <laughs> Those are the guys. These aren't like overage or, well, not overage. Sorry, I said not to use that word. But they're not like international athletes or fifth or sixth year seniors. Wascom won last year when he's a true sophomore. Nathan Green is a true sophomore right now, 20 years old. They're both NCAA champions. They're big, big talents. They just happen to be from the Pacific Northwest. Well, John, I, I suggest Washington stick with in-state talent. I had a nice chat, actually, with Andy Powell. I hadn't really talked to him before. I, know he responds, I knew he must be a good guy, John, because he always responds to your texts and your articles. Well, Robert, I'm going to say, a, have you changed your opinion on Andy Powell? Does he, yes. I guess he doesn't listen to the podcast because you've kind of bashed him for like the last year or two, saying... You've suggested that he's overrated, and then you got I to him. I didn't bash him. I didn't bash him. Okay. Just, I'm just jealous of the younger coaches, but he was a lowly volunteer assistant at Columbia when I was at Cornell for one year. I was talking to him about that. Apparently, his boss has spent time in prison, which I learned at NCH, which was kind of shocking. don't want to get into that, but he was saying, I was talking about recruiting, well, I was congratulating him on on being this successful. He and his wife. I always mispronounce her name as well, John. What do you think it is? Tell I always say you... Marika, but it's not. It's no, like it's Marisa. Marisa. It's just Marisa. And I said, you're, you're, you guys are doing such a good job coaching and your kids seem to be successful. I mean, his son just won the state meeting in Washington. And he's like, yeah, they're really self self dependent or self. Uh, I forgot what the word was. They can do well on their own. But yeah, he said his son is super talented. I'm like, do you talk to him about running? He's like, not at all. We just hope that he has a smile on his face. But I said, he said, oh, you'd never get back into it, would you? And I said, well, I don't know. Like coaching at your level, I'm not sure if I'd ever want to do that. It seems to me that you have to do things I wouldn't feel ethically comfortable doing. He's like, what do you mean? And. I said, oh, like you get someone on a lot of money on a scholarship and then you realize they're not any good and you kind of have to make their life miserable so they leave. And he's like, I don't do that. Milt doesn't do that. And what he told me was something that was really interesting to me. When I was at Cornell, I mean, Weldon was a walk-on at Yale and I prided myself on, on, on the walk-ons and we had some amazing success stories, guys that were winning conference, getting second in conference that were walk-ons. But we we had an 800 guy. I forgot if he went 155 or 157 in high school. Michigan wouldn't let him walk on. And he ended up being pretty darn good for us. I was like second in the conference, winning 
150 or 149. But it kind of hit me. I'm like, after like the end of my Cornell crowd, I'm like, okay, I see why Michigan doesn't do this. Like it was so much fun coaching this guy. And he was so appreciative, but you know, by the time he's a senior, maybe he's fourth or fifth or sixth in the big 10. So loaded, but that's a one out of 10 type story. The other nine, are they disgruntled? Do they bring your team morale down? Do they complain? They take away your time. You only have so much time. So, Andy told me this story. He said, yeah, John Anderson gave me a hard time. He asked, what is the walk-on standard for the University of Washington as a miler? And he's like, and I told him 403 in the mile. And John's like, what? And I totally get it, and I totally love it, and I'm totally fine with it because he said something like, I don't know, someone look up the Pac-12 limit. There's a limit to the number of guys you can take to a conference meet. Like, Ivy League is 33 indoors, 36 outdoors, or is it 30 and 33? And that's it. So we had 75 guys in the team. 40 didn't get to go. But a lot of them weren't, you know, after about 35, most of them weren't good enough to go anyways. But basically, whatever the Pac-10 limit, if it's like 26, at Washington, they only have like 29 guys on the team. So everyone, he's like, everyone's important to me. I want everyone to succeed. I'm really, they're like our family and we're trying to make sure they do well. And that was my biggest complaint. My best friend in college, my two best friends from college were hurt and they felt like when they weren't healthy, the coach didn't care about them. Whereas if you have a smaller team, it's super elite. Yeah, it sucks for the walk-ons, but everybody else is really treated not as a as a disposable asset, but as someone who's important. So, anyways, but I was gonna get. I do have to because now that I praised him for the last ten minutes, gotta give him a hard time, John. These transfers were, were disasters for Oregon. Like you said, overage, like international students. They had you know, Yale. I mean, Yale's got their track team isn't exactly crushing it these days. Haley Delay. Second in the country at NCAAs for Yale. 10th at Washington this year. Brian Fay, the Irishman. He's the NCAA leader in the 5,000. He's got 352 miles speed. You think a tactical 5,000 would play right into his wheelhouse. Instead, he doesn't. Did he? Was he seventh or did he even score? Well, I don't think it's ever been Do- 90 degrees with 60% or 71 dew point in Ireland. So that may have hindered his progress a little bit in that race. Thank you, John. A dude who trains in an Irishman who trains in Washington, going to Texas for a 5k 90 degree heat. And I was a Texan born and raised and I hated running in the heat. I would have gotten lapped so badly in that 10k at NCAAs. You put me in it. Maybe the 5k as well. Hey, Alistair, Alistair Craig used to do well in those heat in those hot performances. No problem. By the way, Brian, if you're listening, I love you. I'm just bitter because I thought for sure I, I looked at those speed and, and the credentials. And I'm like, okay, no, it'll be it'll be tactical because it's hot and nobody will run him and he'll blast it. And he beat all those Stanford guys. He won the five and the ten in Pac 12s. So I picked him to win. And John, though, John dinged him. John's like, why'd you pick Brian Fade to win? I said, look at those stats, John. John's like, but he's never done anything at NCAs. And John was right. Yeah, he's a big talent. He's still a big talent. He ran pretty well at the Euros last year. Also, Alistair Craig, bad example. Uh, born and raised in South Africa, Robert. Where it's significantly warmer than Ireland. Uh, Thank you, John. I would say, also, if you're dinging that UW transfers grad students, well, one of their best guys, Kieran Lum, turned pro in the middle of this season. I don't know if he had eligibility outdoors, actually, or not, but he left. And Sam Ellis... 
would have made the 800 meter final, but got DQ'd. He did run, looked like he ran on the lane line. It was a little hard to tell, but it was. We talked about this situation on. Did we talk about this situation on the podcast? He was DQ'd because a coach of an athlete from another heat filed a protest against him, and they wound up not DQing him for what the pro, the subject of the protest was that was obstruction. But they did find that he stepped on the lane line on the first turn and they DQ'd him for that. But he, he did look very good in that 800. He just didn't get the chance to run the final. We need to implement the rule. Any DQ needs to be done within like two minutes of the race. I'm sorry. We don't go look for random infractions like 20 minutes after the race. We've said it before. You need to have the coaches challenge just like the NFL. I don't know if Ellis would have gotten my Princeton alum would have gotten third in the fifteen hundred though, like he did last year under the Prince. These Ivy League coaches, you can't top us. You can't. I mean, we we maximize our talent. And they go to other schools, and you know, no one ran any faster for someone else than they did for me. That's all I have to say. Can, well, maybe you guys weren't being even desired by other schools, but can we give Andy Powell some credit? Like, what is this guy? Like, I don't know why he doesn't get more credit. He did this in Oregon, too. I think in Oregon, I viewed him as like, oh, Lanana's little assistant. Now he's doing it in Washington. I mean, this is unprecedented. Who's not giving him credit? I've given him credit for years. The guy's a great mile coach. I mean, Black page. Look, look, at so what the, look at what they've done. He's coached, I think the stat was, Washington said he's coached six of the last 13 NCAA champions in the 1500. I think they're giving him credit for Andy Weeding, and I believe Andy Weeding was more coached by Lanana. But you know, he coached Centro in 2011. He coached Matt Fleet 2013, 2014, and now he's coached Wascom and Nathan Green. So pretty awesome. They went one two the last time a school went one two in the 1500. That was Oregon. Andy Powell's group with Weeding, AJ Acosta, and Matthew Centrowitz. It's crazy. Winning three straight NCAA titles with three different athletes and essentially the same event, it's ludicrous. And he's keeping them all happy. They have a great team culture. Yeah, it, it's super impressive what he's done. What I would say about that, well, there's a lot of good coaches, John. It's just obvious. I mean, look at Van Hoy, Cal Poly, and what he's doing, and Dave Smith at Oklahoma State, and but it's God, if you really pay attention, it's it's kind of amazing. But one thing I was thinking, if I was Andy Powell in recruiting trail, although this person bombed too, it, as good as Washington was, they had some really high profile bombs. NCAA leader in the fifteen hundred, daughter of former world champion Sonia Sullivan, daughter of Melbourne Track Club coach and super agent Nick Badeau, Sophia Sullivan. Bombed the final and did not do well. And I guess she was talked about because she ran a little rough in the prelims and hit there was some contact made. People were talking about the message boards. But if I was Andy if Andy and Marisa Powell, I'd say this is this is like one of running's biggest royalty couples. Where do they let their daughter come to college? Now maybe the daughter made the decision on her own. But to me, that's like these people know running and where do they go to school? <laughs> Sophie O'Sullivan's picking your program. You know, that's a pretty good sign. Although let's watch her transfer out because she doesn't score. <laughs> but yeah. 
Any other final thoughts on NCAAs? I suppose we should mention that Kai Robinson swept the 5K and the 10K at this meet. Looked miles better than everyone in that 5K. He closed in 55, which is, you know, it's quick. It's not like mind-blowing. It reminded me it was a very similar race to 2019 when you had Morgan McDonald and Grant Fisher going at it. And they closed, I think it was like 52 and 53 or something at a pretty similar race. So I think that was a little higher quality, but to do that after winning the 10K, which, you know, 2019, neither Fisher nor McDonald were in the 10K that year, where he looked fantastic in the 10K, 28-10, 54 last lap, going 1-2 with Charles Hicks. I mean, talking about people whose stock rose over the weekend, Kai Robinson skyrocketed after this weekend, Robert. Yeah, he's the NCAA superstar. And I thought it was cool, John. He ran World Cross. I mean, what was he at NCAA Cross this year? Last I think year. he was 14th. I mean, that's not groundbreaking. And then to do this, like, I was totally shocked. Now, maybe I should have been paying more attention. 10th, sorry. 10th at NCAA Cross. Because he did really well at, like, Pac-12, 1500, right? Yeah, he was second behind Nathan Green in that race. And that shows great speed. But, wow. And then you're... you're Hicks, obviously. I mean, Sanford's really creating something. J.J. Clark's doing a good job. I mean, he's the head of the program. Well, Ricardo Santos, he needs, he needs some props for this because, you know, there's so much pressure at Stanford. But Robinson, yeah, to get second in the 1500 as a 10K runner is sick. Think about that. No wonder he blew those guys' doors off at the end. That's what's crazy is if you look at the Pac-12 5,000-meter results, Brian Fay beat Robinson. I'm Robinson's doubling back from the 5-1500, but he beat him by six seconds, almost six and a half, 14.08.03, Cole Sprout, 14.12.28, Kai Robinson, 14.44. So next year for the NCAA cross-country, I know NAU has gotten a transfer in. It was a cross-country. It was an All-American, but – Stanford's going to have two guys. I mean, if Hicks and Robinson come back, how do they not top 10? And then Sprout, somehow he didn't make the meet. I'd like to get the details of that, John, because Ricardo said something like un- something unfortunate happened at regionals. I wonder what happened to Sprout, but I guess he was only 118th in cross country, but you'd think like if he's as good as these other guys, he could be top 10. Well, Sprout's I mean, been snake bitten because remember he had an injury at cross country and that kind of derailed their team title hopes. He's running into some bad luck, but I, I do want. I'm looking at this. It's this fall will be 20 years since Stanford won their last NCAA cross country title. They're going to have the pieces. Let's remember they've got two of the top high school recruits in the country coming in, including Lex Young, who just ran 13:34. They've got Leo Young, who was the U.S. Junior cross country champion. One of them might be able to step in right away and help out their team. So it's going to be fascinating to watch that, but. Oklahoma State's still going to be good. NAU's still going to be good. It's not even if you have someone as good as Charles Hicks and Kai Robinson, a pair of NCAA champs on your team, you still got to roll five deep. It doesn't guarantee anything. Yeah, one of my favorite things that you guys talked about on the Sporters Club show was can Stanford beat NAU? Late at NAU, we just you guys discussed it a little bit on the Sporters Club show. Nico Young. He may never win an NCAA title. He made a bold grab for glory with a mile to go. 
I didn't like how he did it either. If I'm ranking the ranking the moves for glory, I didn't like either of them too much. Tui, too soon. But I, I rank hers better than Young's. It was too hard too quickly. Like, wind it up. But you don't need to, like, sprint with 1,600 to go like the gun just went off. Like, there's a way to build into it. I don't think it would have made a difference. At least he went for it. Same thing. But, guys, we can't talk about NCAs forever. We're almost exactly 48 hours away from the Oslo Diamond League. And on Friday, we were bu billing this more as a world record attempt for Jakob Ingebrigtsen. He was telling Norwegian media, oh, the track in Oslo isn't that fast. I hope to just do my best. I'm calling off any world record attempt, but this is a loaded 1500. This is a great matchup. It's like a mini world championships, a mini Olympics. You got Jakob. See if I can do these without looking them up. And should I do them in order of how I, I view the, the favorites? I'm going to shock people with my second choice. Yared Nagus. I might throw some people off here. Mohamed Katir. Timothy Chariot. Ollie Hoare. Josh Kerr. Mario Garcia Romo. I'm not putting him in the next on the list. He will finish lower than that spot. Who else am I missing, John? This is just a. It's Neil Gorley. Neil Gorley. Fantastic indoors this year. Did you no say Tim Chariot, right? Yes. Yeah. The only guy really missing is is Jake Whiteman. Oh, and um, Ronald Chariot. So two potential medalists at Worlds, but this did is you mention otherwise. Josh I thought I did. I meant to. I thought you did. Right. What about the guy from Ingebrigtsen's hometown? I'm not mentioning a guy I'd never heard of until two days ago, but. He's not going to factor for the win, but. It is an interesting story. Nav, I'm probably butchering his name. I'm sorry. Nav Gilja Nordas from Sadness, which is the Ingebrigtsen's hometown, being coached by Gert, their father, who no longer coaches the Ingebrigtsen brothers, just ran 332 in Paris over the weekend. He says he's going for Henrik Ingebrigtsen's personal best, which is 331, which would make him the third, he's the third fastest Ingebrigtsen brother. So, That'll be fun to see that happen as well. This is like Game of Thrones to me. The kids throw the dad away and the dad finds someone else and is like, I'm going to conquer you with someone else from the village who appreciates me. I'm a little upset that our guy, Niels Leros, is not in this race. I mean, by the way, we have him on the podcast last week. What does he do? He didn't even tell us. I think it was because I gave him a little bit of a hard time. We said, if you were an American, you'd have the U.S. record at 15 steeple, five, I mean, 15, eight, excuse me, 1,500, 3,000, 5,000. I go, I don't think I can give it to you in the 800 because you're 146.3 is a hand time. So that rounds up to 146.5. And our national record is 146.45 for high school. What does he do over the weekend? 145. So he shows up on the show and then PRs a few days later. If he talked to Alex and me, Probably my coaching and Alex's youth and enthusiasm for the sport. It's, it's unbelievable. Atlanta Tread Club, I don't really want to live in Atlanta. Alex, you can move to Atlanta and coach the guys on site, and I will live here in Baltimore. We'll coach the team for $500,000 each. You'll have to drop out of college, though, Alex. He's, He's almost done. He's been have... waiting in three years. Oh, well, then 
I'll move down there until you graduate, and then I'll come back to Baltimore. Are you in? Sounds good to me. Okay. All right. I do wonder the same thing as Weldon, though. Ingebrigtsen is the clear favorite. We know he's in fantastic shape. But there's a murderer's row of Milers lined up to take that shot at him. And we were saying a few weeks ago, after Rabat, hey, maybe Nagus, if he's on his shoulder, right on his shoulder with 200 to go, that's the spot everyone wants to be in, so it's hard to get there. Could he maybe beat Jakob over the last 200, even though Jakob's last 200 and Rabat was spectacular? I, I'm still picking Ingebrigtsen in this race, but... Who is the most likely to beat him? Weldon thinks it's Nagus. I'm inclined to agree, but like Muhammad Katir and Josh Kerr, they've both medaled. They've both run sub 330. We know Katir's fit. Josh Kerr looked pretty good at the Portland Track Festival. Timothy Chariot's not dead. He just ran 331 in LA. I mean, I think you could argue any of them have as good a shot as Nagus to beat him. What, Robert, who do you think's the biggest threat to Inga Brixen in this race? There's only three people that could beat him. And I think most, uh, well, I'm kind of, I, I think Nagus or Katir, well, I think Nagus is most likely. Nagus beat Katir indoors. And then Chariot, he's done it in the past. These other guys are guys that are run for second or third. What I don't, what I would want to wonder is, and I think Inger Bridgen should be feeling confident because he ran so well last week. But if I was him, I think every year I'd run this race without a rabbit. It's my home meet and say, save the bucks, save the 5000 or whatever it costs. And I'm going to practice for this for Worlds here. I'd want to take these guys on without a rabbit and see if I can just rabbit and run away from them. When does he get to practice it? I love this idea, Robert. This is a brilliant idea. And... Because he doesn't, well, I guess he does do Euros every year, but like running in the NCAA is, is really great practice for like running in packs. And that's one thing I think Will Sumner's really, I mean, in high school, he's probably way better than everybody else. He wasn't used to running in packs and stuff. I wonder if that's why he ran in the back and in, in, in indoors. He's just more comfortable being in the back instead of being surrounded by people. Although this race, he ran in front of everyone. But, you know, Ingerbertson does do Euros a lot, so he gets to practice with rounds there and unrabbited stuff there, but he's just so much better than everybody at the European level for the most part. That's going to be a fun race. Two to four on Thursday. We'll do a live podcast after that. A few other things before we get out of here. Um, I did bump into Dylan Jacobs on the final day of NCAAs. Asked him about why he didn't run. And he didn't open up to about this after the 10,000, but he said, hey, my back's really been bothering me the last few weeks. It's bothering me now. I don't. It's not worth it. And I said, well, has it been impacting your workouts? He said, yes. So he was another NCAA champ that didn't win, injured. Um, I bumped into Vinland Anna, the UVA coach. I said, hey, what happened to Gary Martin? He didn't run regionals. He said, oh, he's really sick. But he spoke very highly of his talent level. Said he might be a, an amazing 5,000 runner as well. That surprised me. So that was some of the stuff I got from actually flying out there. 
One thing we didn't mention, John, was Rosine Willis. Your YouTube, your interview's up on YouTube, but she's like, I've really been struggling recently, both sort of physically and emotionally. I don't know. Freshman year can be tough. You're far away from home. She's a world junior champ. She won NCAs. You know, she did pretty well at NCAA outdoors. But like, if if I'm her, them. I don't know. Sometimes running can be like a stabilizing force in your life. And maybe she loves to run. So if that's the case, keep running, run USA's. But if not, be happy to pull the plug in the season, let her rest up, get happy, get healthy. You know, I don't even want to, I can be tough though. Yeah. I'm, you know, She's, I also had a grade her freshman year, and she said she would give her an A because she won two NCAA titles indoors, 800 DMR. She was fourth outdoors. I think anyone would give that an A. Uh, the problem is she's coming in as a world junior champion. She's, based on her PRs, she's expected to be one of the best, if not the best in the NCAA from the, very, from the get-go. Everyone's paying attention to her every race out. Everyone on that Stanford campus is a superstar academically, extracurricular, sports, whatever it is, you're, you're going to be great and the expectations are going to be high. For someone moving from Wisconsin out there, first time in your your life you're alone, it can be a challenge. And, you know, that's not to say freshmen can't run well. We just saw Will Sumner run amazingly well, though he's a lot closer to home. It's just that, there is more to these athletes than just looking at times and saying, oh, she ran this in 2022, so she must take this next step, 2023. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Hopefully, she can reach a situation next year where she's you know, feeling better from a mental health perspective. But yeah, it's, it's a big adjustment in someone's life. And when you've, also, you've got these expectations heaped on your shoulders, it can be a lot for someone who's only 18 years old to, to handle. But don't misunderstand. She ran well. Oh, she, she did. Yeah, I'm not, no, I'm not sports. saying like this was a bad season. Again, NCAA champion doors, fourth outdoors. That that's a very good freshman year. A couple other things, guys. Just looking for something on the homepage. I saw this. It's super hot and just extremely sad. We already knew this. Tori Bowie, former 100 meter world champion, passed away last month. But now the cause of death is out. She died from complications of preg- pregnancy. I don't know why. Just, just to see this, it, anytime a loss, there's a loss of life, it's extremely sad. Life is a true gift from God, in my opinion. But just seeing this, it really hit home again. Maybe because my wife's eight and a half months pregnant. But Tori and the baby, we already knew they both were gone, but Somehow this was made it even sadder for me or maybe just brought another reminder. So, I don't know. Thoughts to her family and friends. And I keep reading different things. You said complications of pregnancy. I read complications of childbirth. Excuse me. That, that's what I meant. But we can't end on sad news. Life goes on for the rest of us. It is a blessing. Oslo Diamond League on Thursday, as we said, this thing is loaded and... We didn't plan this, but John has Jonathan Galt, a staff writer, has an amazing article coming out. You need to join the supporters club to ju- read it. 
at least at first. We're paywalling this thing at first. It's on double threshold training. From Norway to Flagstaff, the secrets of double threshold training explained. And this is so fitting. It's the type of training that Jakob Ingebrigtsen has made famous, but a former Let's Run visitor, Marius Bakken really sort of started this on the big scale. And John traces it. Jakob's father picked up on this. I'm sure this is how he's coaching this Narve Nordas guy. He made a 10K runner, such a great 1,500-meter runner. But, John, I love this article. It's one of your best. And I think more and more people are training like this. I never did double threshold training, but it reminds me of my training. Maybe I was doing single threshold training, but just not overdoing it in training. And I went from being some hack to getting fourth in the country twice. It's just pretty easy, repeatable training. And these guys are now doing it twice a day. I don't know if I would call it easy. I mean, you've got to stay on top of a lot of things. You've got to be recovering. You've got to be fueling. You've got to be sleeping. But yes, if you do it right, it's been getting a lot of good results. And we like to say on Let's Run, you know, there is no magic bullet uh, when it comes to distance training. A lot of people have had success with a lot of different approaches. But this is something that's really popular right now. So I kind of wanted to dig in and figure out, like, why? Why is it taken off? What's so good about it flagstaff has really become the the north north american center for this kind of training in part because you know the altitude's so, so high you really have to measure your effort well and that's what this whole thing's about you know you're not going to be running yourself into the ground with this kind of training if you're doing it correctly but it's kind of cool there's even a connection to seb co which i was able to uncover that was pretty interesting Bob Kennedy? I mean, this is crazy. Bob Kennedy's mentioned the story. He didn't do double threshold training, but there's a link there to Marius Barkin, who's the father of this system. I did try to talk to the Ingebrigtsons. I wasn't successful in getting any quotes or an interview with any of them. So there's nothing from them in there, but there's a lot about NAU, how they've adopted it, and it's taken them to the top of the NCAA. Cam Levins used it to run... North American record in the marathon in Tokyo. So it's become very popular. Well, the eight and a half month pregnant wife really has to go have lunch with me. So I have to go. But speaking of the Ingebrigtsons, don't worry, John, I got Alex on it. I've put a bounty on Jakob Ingebrigtsons head if he comes onto the podcast. A bonus will be going to Alex. And I told Robert this, and he's like, What? We've never even tried to get Jakob on the podcast. Well, maybe that's the problem. But if he's on the podcast, there's a bounty for Alex. So, got to go, guys. Great one. Jakob, I know he listens to the videos. He's seen me. He said my comments were interesting. If you're watching today, listening today, we'll make you a free Supporters Club member through the year 2099. Join the great Dan Mahowski as a free member so you can read the article because it's going to be behind the paywall. All right, until next week, we'll see you guys later. Oh, we got a special interview coming up in a couple of days, so check your podcast feed.